Welcome to the Pre-Vet Podcast. I'm Alex Avellino, your tour guide on the journey to becoming a veterinarian. Listen along as we provide you with tips, tricks, and tales on applying to veterinary school. Welcome back to the Pre-Vet Podcast. I'm Alex Avellino. Quick reminder to our guests that during season three, we are recording during social distancing, so the audio might sound a little bit different. Today, my guest is Dr. Liz Steele, and she's going to talk to us all about equine medicine. Dr. Steele, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Alex. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. I'm really excited to have you because I feel like I don't do equine medicine justice on the show. So I'm glad that we'll be able to talk about lots of different parts of equine med because your clinic does a lot of the things. But before we dive in, can we talk about where did you do your undergrad and where did you go to vet school? Sure. No, I love telling this story. So I, mine was a little bit unique in that my father is a veterinarian and he graduated from the second class ever at the University of Florida. So I know I was born while he was still in vet school. Can you imagine that? I love that. (laughs) So I was born when he was a senior And um, so it's only natural that he only gave me two choices of schools that I was allowed to choose to go to. And that was um, the University of Florida or Sunday school. (laughs) So anyways, I, um, so yeah, I grew up as a veterinarian's daughter and that's all I ever wanted to do. So I, I was fortunate enough to get my undergrad Um, at the University of Florida Animal Science um, program. I chose animal biology as a major. Um, And then I was accepted into the class of 2006 um, at the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine. So super lucky to have been the first of the second generation to come through the University of Florida. So they call it like a legacy graduate. So my- My dad went through the vet school and then I was the first of like a child of a graduate to come through. So Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> Love that. Yeah. So you're a double gator, born a gator, did everything at UF. Uh, did you know you wanted to do equine medicine while you were in vet school? Have you always been a horse girl? I have. You know, I mean, I, I my father had a mixed practice. And he did large animal work like a couple days a week. And I would absolutely beg, borrow, and plead for him to take me along. And, you know, I've always loved horses. I I finally talked my parents into letting me get um, a pony when I was really young. And and I've basically never not had a horse now ever since then. So I was that girl that just kind of lived in the barn. and, And that's where you could find me. And just very, very passionate about it. I really don't get to ride horses much anymore, but I love living vicariously through, you know, my clients and my patients. So yeah, I, I, it ran through my blood from a very, very young age. Let's talk about the practice. So I am on the practice website right now. And at the top we have four options. I'm sure you do more than just these four, but we have performance horse, reproductive, chiropractic, and dentistry. So I'm hoping we can break down each section so students can know as they're starting to think about what career they want in veterinary medicine, 
by hearing what each of these sections are and what you see, uh, they might start to think, ooh, that sounds like something that's really up my alley. So let's start with performance. Talk to me about what performance medicine is for horses. All right, so that's a great question. And actually, I've given a few presentations to kind of our local community that, that's not real familiar with that. Um, so I'm going to explain it really basic, even though I know most of the people listening to this is going to already understand what it means. But basically, performance horse or sports, sports medicine in the equine side is basically any competing athlete um, that is not competing up to its potential or maybe has developed some type of a lameness um, problem obviously needs to go and see a performance horse or sports medicine veterinarian. Um, and our job is to take an animal that walks into the clinic just fine, appearing to be very normal, and perform an evaluation with our five senses and maybe some diagnostic equipment to be able to figure out from this animal that cannot speak and can hardly communicate with us what hurts. And that's kind of a fun, thrilling mystery to have to solve. And it's really neat to, to use, um, like I said, our five senses. My mentor taught me that before I even watch a horse move, I should be able to perform an examination with my eyes and my hands and my sense of, of touch and my sense of feel and palpating every single muscle, ligament, tendon, joint space of that horse and get a pretty good idea of what I'm gonna see before I even watch that horse go. And so this is a skill that I feel like you could spend your entire veterinary career trying to master and still be learning things by the time you retire. And for some people that's terrifying and for some people that's, that's thrilling, um, but it's, it's certainly a very, very fun and challenging component of our practice and one that I love. I don't, I don't feel like there's a whole lot more rewarding than for someone to walk into the clinic with a horse and say, we used to compete at this level. Now we've fallen back a couple of levels. Can you help us figure out what's going on? And then after we pull all that information from the horse and implement some type of a treatment plan for what we find. And they call back in a couple of weeks and say, we're back where we were before. Like, we can't thank you enough. That's, that's incredibly rewarding to me. So that's kind of sports medicine. And we, we incorporate all of the diagnostics. So we've got um, digital radiography. We've got really nice ultrasound units. We, we use um, thermography. We use fluoroscopy. We use a lot of different diagnostic modalities to help us narrow down and diagnose where the problem is. Um, and, then, and then all kinds of treatment options, you know, that are out there today. Incorporating now our fitness and rehab program um, to be able to strength build and go back to the basics of some of these athletes just aren't in the fit athletic shape that they should be in. So everybody's wanting to come in for a quick fix or a quick injection of a joint and whatever else, but it may be that you're asking an out of shape horse to do, you know, a, a, an athletic move that they just physically can't do. And so anyways, that, that part of it's uh, fun and exciting too.
do you feel like with folks who own horses, there's just like that deeper connection that not not necessarily deeper than a companion animal that's like a small animal, but there's a huge connection that someone has with their horse. There is, you know, and there's various levels of this. And this is this is something that I guess I probably wasn't quite prepared for. Um, but we almost have to be a psychologist. <laughs> And, and, you know, so you have, you have people who um, their horse is the only component of their life that is important. Um, and then you have people who have horses that are um, their partner in business. So like every single day, that horse helps them complete their job on a ranch. Um, their horse is actually a working member of the team. And then you have horses who are um, you know, basically are um, retired and um, they want to keep them as comfortable as possible, but economically can't, can, you know, do, do absolutely everything for them. And then you have horses who um, are basically just a, a piece of a business um, and there's not a whole lot of emotional attachment to them. And so um, it's, it's, it's hard to differentiate what group um, the, the owner, you know, falls into. And so I learned a long time ago that no matter what type of group I want to put them into, it doesn't really matter. I just lay out every single option for every single animal and then I allow them to choose and we talk through the pros and cons of it. So, um, so yes, I mean, there's, there's some people who I really feel like if their horse doesn't make it, they could potentially commit suicide. <laughs> and then there's people who say, you know, that this, from an economical standpoint, I can replace this animal for $2,000. And so that's what you have to spend on him, you know? And so we have to kind of put our, you know, any, any bit of judgment or put our emotions aside and just you know, basically treat every single horse and every single client the same and offer every single option to them and then talk through and, and help and let them choose, you know, which one um, is best in their situation. I love this idea of being objective and really taking our own opinions or biases out of the way. And just like you said, delivering the best care and what's best for that client and that animal without our own opinion. So I think that's wise for all of our listeners to think about whether they work with horses or not. That's what they need to be doing. Let's talk about repro. So what kinds of um, repro, we've had a, a doc on before about Therio in general. So what types of repro cases do y'all see at your clinic? Yeah, so our repro is very seasonal in horses. Um, so it runs from February, first to June 30th. Um, and we see, we basically do artificial insemination, um, both frozen, frozen and fresh. Um, and we do a decent amount of embryo transfer work. Uh, when I first got out of veterinary school, repro was just the only thing I ever wanted to do. And I still am very passionate about it. But we breed about 70 mares a year, artificial insemination, and do about 25 embryo transfers. Um, I used to run my own uh, surrogate or recipient mare herd, but I don't anymore. I had about 35 mares. 
Um, and it was neat for learning experiences too. We got to, you know, we, we, we got, students got to practice all kinds of things, um, you know, and techniques and, and whatnot on them. But anyways, now I send all of my embryos up to Ocala and they, they um, go into a recipient mare up, up there. So um, we also foal uh, mares here at the facility with 24 hour watch and surveillance. Um, and now with our surgery center, we're set up to do an emergency C-section if we have to. Let's say this mare has had a tough pregnancy and now she needs some work done on her. Let's break down the chiropractic side of your <laughs> clinic. Uh, so tell me, what does equine chiropractic medicine look like? What are we talking about here? Yeah, so um, chiropractics is something that I went and um, chose a school in Texas to go to um, only about five, five, six years ago. There's four, four veterinary chiropractic schools, I believe, in the United States. You legally have to be a veterinarian to attend one of the schools. It's something you do post-veterinary graduation. Um, and it's just a really neat tool to have in your tool bag. Um, I can't tell you, how, I'm a very see it to believe it type person. And so um, before I do an adjustment on a horse, I will show an owner, or I might even let the owner take a, like for example, a treat um, for a horse and ask him to take the treat from um, their chest or around on their rib cage and bend around and the horse may not be able to make that motion and they can physically see that. Um, and then I'll adjust. Um, usually it's a cervical or pole adjustment. And then I hand them another treat and, and they see that that horse can now make that normal range of motion. And they're like, wow, that's what I was feeling when I was riding and then it's fixed. So that's, that's pretty, pretty neat, rewarding, um, type of thing. It, Eastern medicine in general and Western medicine have never really meshed well. Um, and I think that's starting to change as a little bit of research work is coming out to prove some of the very science-minded Western medicine uh, practitioners that there, there's a place and a, and a need for Eastern medicine as well. Um, and so that's exciting to see. Uh, I think it's being incorporated into veterinary programs now as, a, as an option that, that's not looked at and considered as taboo or, or more of a joke or, or whatnot. And, and that's great too, because I tell you, it's definitely, um, like I said, a really neat tool to have in your, in your tool bag. And it's becoming more popular and more demanded by clients as well, chiropractics and acupuncture. I, if I had the time to now break away and go learn um, acupuncture, I sure would as well. That, I love that you were a, you're able to show clients, you know, with that adjustment, like, hey, this, this really can help. Do they, is it like human chiropractic medicine where you're going, you know, for six months to do your adjustments or are these horses potentially coming in one time, getting something looked at? What is that timeline like? Yeah, so it's a case-by-case -case basis, just like us. If we go in because we're hurting, then we probably need to have a few visits before we get all those muscles retrained and loosened up to where your adjustment holds. Um, our athletes, we work on a lot of athletes, and they, they just need to be adjusted on a regular basis, period. 
Um, you know, I get adjusted once a month and I, I would love to get adjusted every, every week or every two weeks, you know, it's just, it depends on how hard we use our body. Horses are not made perfectly confirmation wise. And so that, that makes them, you know, use their bodies in ways that um, is not natural. And so honestly, my athletes, I usually adjust at least once a month. Um, but if the rider is noticing, most of my riders are pretty astute and they'll call me as soon as they feel like something is off. And then they, they usually call back the next day and say, yep, that, that fixed it. I'm, we're all good. We're now holding our lead. How do you even adjust a horse? Like I know you can, there's, are you like cracking its back? Like, how are you adjusting it? So I have a funny story about this. You know, um, physics was my least favorite subject, but when I went to chiropractic school, they reminded us that force equals mass times acceleration. And I don't have mass, you don't have mass. Most of us humans don't have mass when we're standing next to a horse. So we have to utilize acceleration. Um, and so that's literally like a very, very, very fast move. So when I went to um, chiropractic school, they gave us this special little, little block that we could practice our adjustment move on. And it was like, it looks like it basically has a, a, this wooden plank and it has a pad on the top of it with a little peg underneath. And that peg is spring loaded and you can basically get, you know, find the peg through the little mat, through the little pad, and then you get into the position that you're going to make your really fast move and you make that move and, and it pops the peg down. And then you can, you can turn the, the um, resistance up on that peg until it gets to the maximum amount of force needed. And that would be like adjusting a 20 year old horse that's been out for 10 years. You know, that vertebra is not going to want to move from where it's been. So when you get good enough at practicing your move you, and you have it at the highest resistance level, you should be able to pop that peg down. And my husband is like this ex-Marine bodybuilder, okay? And so he's very, very strong. And I was practicing one day back at our house and I had it at the highest power and I was able to pop the peg down. And so he walks in the room behind me and I heard something going on. And so I walk back into the room and he's on top of that pad and that peg and with all of his strength, he's pushing and pushing and pushing on the peg and it won't go down. And he said, did you lock this peg in place? And I said, no. And I walked right over there and pop, popped it right into place. <laughs> well, why could you do it and he couldn't? I know. And he goes, there's no way, there's no way you just did that. And I didn't, I said, well, try it again. And, and he couldn't do it. So it just shows you that um, force equals mass times acceleration. And if you're fast, you can be, you know, just as, just as effective as somebody that's super strong. And so then it goes back to anatomy. So if I, um, if I know I want to adjust a vertebra a certain way, then I've got to find a certain point on that vertebra that I direct all of my force towards and make that fast move. So it's not like this giant, big legs going everywhere. My adjustments, and that's what some people, you know, say, you, you know, your adjustment looks so small and minute, you know, and there's a couple different ways to adjust a horse. You can use their legs and pull and yank and do all kinds of things. That's called long lever moves. 
or you can do these short lever moves. And if you know your anatomy and you're quick, <laughs> then you can make the, those, those adjustments. I'm having a very existential moment as you're talking about this because it sounds to me like we can relate it to life where if you know exactly what you need to do and you can execute the one move you need to make, you're going to save so much time and effort than putting towards a lot of work and force and energy towards something that's the wrong move. So it feels like do good work that needs doing. Don't provide attention to something that maybe looks really big and flashy, but isn't going to give you the results that you want. And that to me is what chiropractic medicine sounds like. Can we please talk about dentistry? Why the heck is it called floating teeth? What is up with that term? Yeah, I don't know where that came from. And really, equine dentists and denti dental technicians, they hate the term floating teeth. <laughs> Tell us what it means, because this is something you would see a lot, right? That's a really common thing, to float teeth. It is. And, and the proper way to describe it would be called a dental equilibration. So here's the difference. I, I think way back when, when people realized that horses developed sharp points in their mouth, they would take just like a little file and go in and take that, that sharp point and make it a blunt point so that it no longer caused pain. Um, it, dentistry in horses is, it needs to be such a balancing act because if we just go in there and, and don't um, basically equilibrate or balance that mouth correctly while we're taking down those sharp points and different things, if we leave that amount of pressure just on one or two teeth, um, we'll, we'll end up fracturing those teeth. So if mm. you think about it, when you get a cavity filled and the dentist has you bite down on that paper that, that then shows him where your teeth are touching, horses, we can't really do that with a horse. So we, we have to make sure that we put them in the best occlusion that they possibly can. So I really feel like there's more of an art to it than than, than the term of floating teeth, you know, has. But our practice is made up of um, two equine dental technicians and one veterinarian that performs dentistry. And we, we don't really leave veterinary school, in my opinion, qualified to perform dentistry, period. Um, and so our dental technicians and our veterinarian that does dentistry, they all went out and completed a course with the Academy of Equine Dentistry in Glens Ferry, Idaho. And I'm telling you what, they have learned that anatomy and those processes and how to do that inside and out. I mean, that school is teaching filling cavities, doing root canals, I mean, all kinds of stuff in these horses now. And, um, and they just do a really, really good job. talking about all these different areas of veterinary medicine, super, super busy. You also have a family. So go ahead and talk to me. And I'd love this to be, you know, some of the advice that you have for our students. How do you balance all of this, being a practice owner, having your family, like, how are we doing that? Talk to us about some strategies. So strategy, it's all going to boil down to, um, to one main point, you know, everything that I do in this whole platform of veterinarian, veterinary medicine that I stand on um, is basically that, that I work for God. 
Um, and he's what holds me together because there's no human being on this earth that can, that can be a good mom and be a good wife and be a good veterinarian and be a good team leader um, and, and just have all that perfect. It's just not humanly possible. And so for me, my faith is what holds me together. So I, I have to give that credit there. Um, and if I don't start my day that way and I don't, um, you know, pray for the day and basically say, what opportunities are you going to send my way and make sure that I'm, my heart is ready and responsive to handle that. If I don't have him basically holding the wheel for me, then it all falls apart, the whole, the whole train. And so I'll just start off by saying that. Um, when I first um, became a mom, it was so exciting. I loved being pregnant and um, everybody prepared me for childbirth and they prepared me for how to take care of this new baby and things like that. But no one prepared me for what my mind was going to go through. Um, and what I mean by that is basically um, as a large animal practitioner, you basically your whole life and, and everything inside of you is dedicated towards your career and what you do. And so I went through this mental battle um, where when I was home with my baby, my mind was telling me that I needed to be out working with my clients. And when I was out with my clients, my motherly instinct was saying, you need to be home with your baby. And so I had this constant mental war going on. And again, I had to give it up to God. And I had to say, if I'm supposed to do both these things, you've got to show me how, because I'm losing my sanity. But no, I mean, I, I think you just, you make it work. You know, you, you, um, somebody told me one day, and this was great advice. They said, um, some days I feel like a good mom and some days I feel like a good wife and some days I feel like a really good vet, but they're never on the same day. <laughs> and you have to kind of just mentally prepare yourself to say, all right, I am doing the very, very best that I can. Um, as far as my husband and my children goes, um, I have a few rules that I have for myself. Um, and that's some very specific time of the day that I dedicate myself to them. And I cannot give them quantity of time, but I can give them quality time when I'm with them. So I used to, my, I was going through a time period where I didn't know if I wanted to expand the practice. And I called up my dad and I said, you know, what am I doing? Am I, what, is this, the way I should take, I mean, my boys are in, you know, they're eight and 10 now and, and they're in just critical stages of their life. I don't want to miss anything. And, and he said, Liz, tell me what you remember of me when you were their age. And so I thought for a minute and I said, all right, so I remember when you would um, take me to the barn and, and help me saddle my pony. And then you would you would make him trot because I couldn't make him trot. You'd make him trot. And every time he trotted up to you, I had to give you a kiss. And then I said, I remember, you know, you would, you would take me to the woods and we would look at the deer and the turkeys. And then we would go to the lake and we'd play on the boat. Um, we would go snow skiing and all these things I named off. And he goes, all right. So you never once said just then, you never once remembered that I, there were way more days of the week that I left before you woke up and got home after you were asleep. 
He said, you don't remember the birthdays I missed. You don't remember the emergencies that I had to leave for when we had plans. You never once mentioned any one of those things. And I said, you know what, you're right. And he said, Liz, you'll never be able to give them as much time as you think you should give them, but just make darn sure that it's quality time when you do. And that's what they'll remember. And so I, that's kind of been a, a secret with me. Um, and I've tried to incorporate it. And, uh, and, and like I said, we just do the very, very best um, that we can. But you've definitely got to um, make up specific rules and goals for yourself, limits, um, limitations. Uh, you have to learn how to say no. Um, you have to learn that you're not going to make every single person happy every single day and be okay with that. Um, you just got to do the very, very best you can and, and, and smile and, and don't forget to laugh through the process. Wow, I could just cry. I love that story so much about focusing on the quality moments. It doesn't have to be quantity. Thank you for sharing your faith. I appreciate learning all about how you are, you know, balancing everything you're doing. And it sounds like you're balancing it, like you said, with your faith, with a good attitude, and then setting up those boundaries. And that's something all of us can be employing um, in whatever ways we choose to do it. So thank you so much for teaching us a little bit more about equine medicine today and those different aspects and for showing us what it means to be made of steel. <laughs> thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Sure. Thank you for having me. Good luck to you all listening. And I'm Alex Avellino, and we'll talk to you soon.